Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 122 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the eternal witness Gottlieb, and we will get to the meaning of that in just a minute. But first things first, I want to ask all of our wonderful listeners for a favor. We try not to solicit y'all too much, but we've been kind of, I don't know, failing at this pretty miserably, I think, as far as uh, a podcast is concerned. And we want some iTunes reviews. iTunes reviews are a big game in the podcast world, Jerry. And I, I'm of the same camp as you where I hate asking our listeners for anything because we have the best listeners on the planet. They do so much for us already. It feels Agreed. like crazy to even ask for anything else. But this is something hopefully it only takes you a second. You pop on over to iTunes, throw some stars up there, say what you love about the game podcast. And I, I think we want to do a little giveaway with this, right? Yeah, absolutely. We should not ask for anything for free, you know? Sure. If we're getting something, we're giving something. So I think what we're going to do is in a few weeks, we'll come back. We'll check out those reviews over on iTunes and we will read our favorite one here on the air. And we'll have that person get in touch with us and send them off a nice bag of game goodies, stuff we usually reserve only for our lovely patrons, things like deck boxes, sleeves, all that good kind of stuff. Yeah, and maybe I'll I'll figure out something special to throw in there. But yeah, if y'all could just pop on over to iTunes, leave us a review. It would be much appreciated. By all means, be be honest and everything too. If if you're like the person that Brian found today and posted about on Twitter, and you hate Brian, just <laughs> le, you know let him know. Oh, that guy absolutely made my day. Like, look, I love majors too. I I really can't argue with the guy. So he had a point. I'll say that. Majors is gas. Absolutely. For sure. But, uh, For sure. I, I think I found a good replacement. And unless you abandon me, or uh, I guess unless Cedric poisons me, I think we're going to be sticking together for the long haul. You should be more worried about poison than me abandoning you at this point. <laughs> okay. I, I appreciate that. That's good to hear. So uh, you want to get into the genesis behind the nickname for this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is kind of a cool one. I don't have like a a pithy story or something interesting to say. It just comes from being at the Hunter Burton Memorial this past weekend. Both you and I were down there doing coverage. We had an incredible time. But as we just met everyone and spoke with everyone, we talked a lot about Hunter. Hunter's favorite magic card was Eternal Witness. And one of the people we had the chance to talk with over the course of the weekend was like, it would be awesome if you were to use Eternal Witness as your name for this week on the podcast. And I was just like, absolutely, couldn't agree more. I thought it was very fitting. And it leads in nicely to a discussion of our time at Hunter Burton, which honestly, like we said it a bunch. So I I don't want to say it so much. It starts to feel disingenuous because I assure you it's not. 
but it's unlike any other magic tournament on the planet. It was such a great time. Everyone in Texas was so welcoming, so awesome to us. And we were so pleased to be there uh, and be involved with the Hunter Burton Memorial Open. I, I can't wait to go back. And I really, really hope everyone starts planning. Start planning right now. Put it on your calendar. Know that you're going to the Hunter Burton Memorial next year because it is one of the best times you can possibly have playing magic. So uh, for... Those who don't know, uh, we we have been kind of plugging this the last few weeks leading up to the podcast, and it was last weekend, but this is a tournament that sort of celebrates and memorializes Hunter Burton, who was a longtime competitive magic player and just like gamer overall. He played some poker and a bunch of other stuff and has a Pro Tour Top 8 in Austin in, I think, 2009. The event itself is meant to raise awareness for suicide prevention. That and mental health specifically are topics that are very close to me, near and dear to my heart. And people show up to this tournament to compete for you know large cash prizes and everything. And it's so much more than that. It, it is this weird mix of like a competitive event, but also everyone knows that they are there basically to raise money for charity and everything. So everyone is super cool, super casual, there to have fun. And uh, if you checked out the stream last weekend, you know that there were like people who were coming on every other round and just like, you know, sharing their experience with mental health or suicide or stuff like that. Like this is a, a thing that matters a lot. I, I said this, since the you know the first time I went, which was last year, and it is a tournament unlike any other, and I managed to convince Brian to go with me this year, and he had the exact same experience I did, and I, I think we're just going to plan on going every single year. Oh, for sure, and you know those two things you talked about, like a high stakes competitive tournament and people turning out to have a good time and to embrace like the good things about the game. It sort of feels like those should be contrasting ideals, given like the cutthroatness of any tournament that has a large cash prize, right? Like there's a lot on the line, but at the same time, it just shines throughout the weekend, like sportsmanship being there for each other and just appreciating the game is it runs through everything about the Hunter Burton Memorial open. We got to see some really great magic. I, I mean, I also have metagame takeaways from this tournament that I want to talk about too. And, and we'll get to that, but I really just want to take one more moment to thank everyone involved for having us there. I can't emphasize enough how much you should come with us next year. because we will be there. Yeah, this is a, a a two day modern tournament. It's an open event. There are a bunch of side events going on. We we sponsored a one k standard event, and then there was a five k standard event on Sunday. A bunch of different like legacy, vintage, chaos sealed type of stuff. Like there was a bunch of different stuff going on. So if if you like magic, care about the cause, whatever, just you know, please show up. Yeah, every form of magic you can possibly want to play was there. What were your takeaways as far as gameplay goes from the Hunter Burton Memorial? Because like we said, high stakes tournament, a lot of really good modern players there. And I think it was a really interesting and unique tournament. It was just under, I think, 500 people for the main event. So there were plenty of rounds to kind of suss things out and get a story going. And it's interesting. We, we've done a bunch of coverage now. And one thing I really take away from my coverage experiences is you leave the tournament with a very different perception of the story of that tournament than you would if you were just watching it. Because you know how the rounds are advancing, you see how things are shaping up in real time, you're seeing a bunch more matches, and you really get to understand what's happening 
kind of beneath the surface. So, so what were your takeaways from the Hunter Burton Memorial Open as far as where modern is at right now? Yeah, it was interesting because there was this large tournament in Texas and simultaneously there was SCG Philly, GP Tampa, and GP Bilbao. And all of mm-hmm. these were modern events, right? Right. Huge and weekend for modern. Is it Phoenix was the talk of basically all of the events except for the Hunter Burton tournament where Tron just kind of like rose up and dominated. There were three Tron decks in top eight. There were also three Arclight Phoenix decks, but two of them were mono red. And presumably because of the the wealth of Tron decks in the format or in the field, rather, uh, mono red Phoenix ended up taking it down. So Tron, maybe not dead. Mono red Phoenix, likely better than burn just in general, but also a, a completely reasonable choice if you don't want to play is it. Yeah, it was a really interesting contrast to the other events where Is It Phoenix felt much more dominant. And I think what we saw was like the Tron decks had enough impetus to shake out towards the top of the field. And once that happened, it was really tough for Is It Phoenix to regain traction. Like, I don't think that's a miserable matchup by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that respect in sideboards is starting to decrease for Tron. Like, whereas previously you may have seen more copies of ceremonious rejection. Uh, there may have been more direct ways to attack their mana base, whereas everyone is sort of leaning on blood moons now. And I, I think a bunch of people cut blood moons as well going into this weekend. So it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this was representative of a tournament that was ahead of the curve or maybe a half step behind the curve. It's really hard to say. But one interesting takeaway was that if Tron were to rise up and prove to be an oppressor of the Is It Phoenix decks, which I don't know if I'm 100% sold on that, on that idea. I think it's interesting. I think it's more likely that War Prison is the best oppressor to the Phoenix decks, but we'll get into that in a moment. But if Tron were to rise up, then the flavor of Phoenix that actually should be pushed is mono red because we saw that matchup several times and just the sheer aggression of mono red makes it a nightmare matchup for Tron. Yeah. It's maybe even worse than just the burn matchup, right? Because it's like, yeah, I think so. The the creatures are so much less threatening things like Eidolon of the great revel. You can basically play around and in, in the, the Phoenix deck, they have explosive arc light Phoenix draws. Plus with all the, prowess creatures like you just end up taking like attacks for five and stuff from their creatures not to mention the fact that the deck still just has all the burn spells in it so really just seems like kind of the nightmare for tron and as far as tron versus blue red phoenix i think having main deck relics and Mm -hmm. having this game plan that just largely ignores thing in the ice is huge And the fact that KCI is no longer in the format means that there's really no reason to play Ceremonious Rejection anymore. Like people are playing Spell Pierce, which is fine. But obviously, if your clock is slow enough, Tron is going to be able to play around that or just, you know, play back to back cards or whatever it is. I do think that with the right build and everything, Tron is a favorite against Is It. And Is It having two Blood Moons or whatever doesn't really do a whole lot to change that. I mean, they're not even playing Blood Moon because they're worried about Tron. I think most people are just worried about Amulet at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. And we've we've talked before on this podcast how Blood Moon is a stopgap against Tron. And like it's kind of a nice move from the mono red decks, but the blue red decks that don't clock as quickly. It's fine. I'm not saying it's not effective against Tron. It just isn't going to win the game on its own. Uh, And I think everyone knows that at this point, but people really weren't 
all that concerned about Tron going into this weekend. And, you know, it had a fair performance elsewhere. It wasn't as dominant as it was at the Hunter Burton. Elsewhere, you would argue it was just a clear slam dunk weekend for Phoenix. And we kind of saw that like band talk start to hit a fever pitch again. People talking about this deck maybe being more dominant than Splinter Twin, things like that. Look, I don't want to rehash this conversation. We did it at length. And and quite frankly, I don't think we did a great job of discussing it last week. I think we were a little like dismissive of some people's take. And certainly that's not our intention. I just think both you and I do believe there are moves to be made against Arc Light Phoenix. And I think we may have seen one at the Hunter Burton Memorial, but there's other ones brewing. There's War Prison sitting right there, you know, in second place over in Bilbao. And starting to put up some impressive numbers with very, very low metagame representation. I'd also point to the Amulet players doing well at the SCG. And look, there's like four people on the planet playing this deck and they top eight every tournament. And I promise you there's something there. Also, Edgar was over in our Discord talking about you know his kind of Amulet group having an extraordinary record against Is It Phoenix. And I believe that. It, it makes sense to me. So there's moves to be made for sure, even if it sometimes doesn't feel like it when you look at those top eights and you see 20% of the field and three Is It Phoenix decks in the top eight. The representation is really high. And the good players playing this deck is really high right now. We saw Matt Costa take second place, obviously a phenomenal player. This is exactly the type of deck he wants to be playing. I'm still of the opinion there's moves to make, and I think you'll say the same, Jerry. Yeah, of course. And part of the the reason why we were so dismissive last episode is that it's just really frustrating when the the Twitter bandwagon just hops onto this thing where it's like, oh, ban this card, oh, ban this card, ban this card. And we we certainly could have done a more reasoned take as far as like, you know, why that sort of thinking is not very helpful and not correct and why there are still avenues to explore and why you should just not ban things immediately. And it does get frustrating because then, you know, people more and more people just jump onto that bandwagon. Right. And right. I, I don't necessarily think that that is why cards get banned, you know, but it it doesn't make everyday life enjoyable. You know what I mean? It's like you, you go onto Twitter and you just see like all of this negativity over stuff that like people realistically shouldn't even be complaining about. Yeah, that's the point I would really seize on is that I actually just talked about this over on Head Games this past episode, but I talked a lot about focusing on useful behaviors. Like one of my big guiding principles in my life is just making sure whatever I'm doing is in some way useful. I hate spews and I hate, you know, wasting time on inefficient actions. And in a lot of ways, the ban stuff feels a lot of times inefficient. Like regardless of my opinion on whether the card should be banned or not, it's there now. And like, these are the circumstances under which I'm playing a tournament. So rather than waste a bunch of time talking about it, which I realize is kind of silly as we sit here and talk about it again, I'd rather just proactively try and answer the problem and start talking about what does beat Is It Phoenix. And I am very sure there are options out there. And I hope we start to see the corner turn and see a lot of innovation. I do think though, we're heading to Cincinnati. You and I are going to do some coverage this weekend in a team tournament. And I think a team tournament in particular is less likely to highlight innovation. I think a lot of teams are going to look towards the safe choice and unquestionably the safe choice right now is, is it Phoenix? Yeah, agreed. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't actually do a whole lot of look-ins in the modern seat, you know, because it does seem like whoever is the modern expert is 
likely, you know, for, for the good, the best players on the SCG tour, like the majority of them are playing is at Phoenix at this point. So yeah, I think that's fair. It's going to be kind of awkward. I mean, there's going to be some amulet folks and maybe some Jun people, some burn people, whatever. But if anything, the team tournaments will generally lead to a higher concentration of the quote unquote best deck being in the field. Yeah, that's been my experience thus far. So we'll see how it goes over in uh, Cincinnati. I'm very interested to see how it shakes out. But I think we want to spend the majority of our time this week talking about another tournament, a very big tournament. In fact, the largest tournament probably in the history of Magic the Gathering, at least as far as prize support goes. And maybe you can talk importance as well as we look to open a brand new chapter in Magic's history. Of course talking about the Mythic Invitational, which you are participating in, Jerry. Yeah, the the vast majority of MPL players are going to be there, uh, minus one who was uh, disqualified from a tournament and as punishment had their invitation to this tournament revoked, which I think is a, a fine solution to that sort of thing. And then the eight players from the Hellscape arena ladder grind <laughs> thing well put and then and then a bunch of influencers including cedric phillips so so guard your food is what I you're know, saying make sure not to leave it unattended yep i'm i'm worried but it, it'll be okay i always beat him especially in constructed so i'm not worried about the tournament thing but you know if if we do play and i beat him and then we go out to lunch together or whatever like that's dangerous right for sure yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting tournament for sure. They're, these these are the, the highest stakes in Magic's history. And it is very weird playing in a tournament where your equity is very high. But in order to hit what your equity is, you have to top four the tournament or whatever. Uh, so it is very top heavy. And this is, this is literally life-changing money. This is a quarter million dollars for first place. So it is going to be very interesting to see what happens with the person who wins this tournament too. Where are your nerves at for this tournament? Because it's not like pro tour money is small money. I mean, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but I I would not classify it as life-changing money at all. Uh, I think once you hit a quarter million dollars, you are talking about life-changing money. You know, you can buy a house with that in a lot of places, maybe not here in Seattle, but if you move somewhere else, you could probably get yourself a fine house. I mean, not straight, not straight up, right? But it's like you can make the down payment and Oh, for sure. Yeah, like For sure. You can certainly acquire a house. You could acquire a lot of cars. You could buy a lot of plane tickets to to Magic Fests and MCs and all that sort of stuff, but yeah, I don't know, man. I I don't think that my mindset is going to change too much as far as from like the MCs or anything like that because for the first thing, we already have 7500 guaranteed, right? Mm-hmm. And the prize difference doesn't really change all that much until you start looking at like the top eight cutoff and like the, the top four cutoff and stuff like that. And then maybe it'll change for me if I if I make it that far. But I don't know. For the most part, I just kind of feel like this is a giant free roll and I'm already getting paid very well just to attend and everything. And I think my decks are okay. So I'm not super concerned about that. I mean, when we're recording this, it's Wednesday night and we have uh, about three hours left to submit my decks and I'm doing this podcast rather than freaking out, you know? So I I think I'm in a pretty good place. 
Yeah, that sounds like a fine place to be. And I think a lot of your fellow MPL members are there with you at this point. It seems like most people are submitting their decks, not waiting till midnight. They, they've locked in. They've either <laughs> resigned themselves to their fate or like you, they feel pretty good about what they've discovered. So why don't we move into the actual gameplay of the tournament as opposed to all these kind of ancillary things surrounding it? This is Duo Standard, the first duo standard tournament we're ever going to see maybe the last who knows how this format's going to go yeah we'll uh, see what what are your impressions of the duo standard format we talked a little bit previously about this uh, you've had a little bit more time anything changed for you anything you're really considering carefully as we head into this event well it's weird because duo standard and best of one are different animals right mm-hmm. like best of one you're just jamming games on ladder and it's like okay i'm playing anti-mono red, anti-mono uh, white, Esper control or whatever, and then you play against like Gates and Team of Reclamation and whatever, and you just get smashed. Uh, and that's like kind of frustrating, but you can always click that play button and like get back in the queue, try and hit one of your good matchups and and just keep going. It is, it is a numbers game, right? Because you're not going to play against Team of Reclamation every single time. But there might be like those short periods of time where you play like three bad matchups in a row and it's frustrating. And for for duo standard, it's like, okay, well, this Esper deck does not look good against their lineup. So I'm going to click, you know, the mono red deck for my game three or whatever. And you you're not subjected to playing every single game with the deck that lines up poorly against your opponent's decks. And it's weird because the. Like everyone is testing best of one to prepare for this tournament, which kind of makes sense. But then they run into things like, oh, best of one sucks because it's all matchup dependent. It's all die roll dependent, blah, blah, blah. And that's not really going to matter all that much in duo standard. Right. You're able to mitigate some of that. And I I think that's been lost a little bit with all the preparation on the ladder for this tournament. I mean, it is the best tool available, right? It makes sense to do a lot of your prep work on the ladder, but I think it does require some further logic beyond that and some realizations that uh, you do have more control. And I think we both like best of one, like deep down inside, we're both glad it's there. Uh, Even if there are those frustrations with the kind of matchup lottery and it feels like you're giving up some agency, but all those things are fine because there's a lot of people who want that experience. That's the way they want to play. They came up on Hearthstone. They came up on these other games, which have always been ladder-based. And it's what they know. And sideboarding is a tricky skill to pick up. And it's something that we've done for years and years. So it seems obvious to us. But it's it's weird in the context of other card games. And I think acknowledging that and leaning into the best of one format is good for Magic's health. Even if I... This isn't me saying I prefer it. I certainly prefer best of three. But I'm glad best of one exists And that's kind of what the show is about today is acknowledging that with Arena, the game's changing and we want to offer things to all of our listeners. And we hopefully we have a lot of listeners who are just finding the game via Magic Arena and are standing on the best of one ladder and battling there every day. And we want to make sure to give them something, too. And I think that's why it's important we discuss this format today. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, we're also at a point where your standing on ladder is going to dictate whether or not you play in these qualifier tournaments to queue for arena mythic championships and stuff like that. And best of one is a way for you to actually qualify for a PT level event, you know, 
there there could be a spot right where it's like best of three is is kind of solved and not a lot of people are playing best of one so maybe you can get a, a bigger edge by playing best of one and like listening to this podcast you know so like i still think that this sort of thing even if 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 you're not currently engaging with best of one it could matter to you for sure in the future 100 percent. and i also think it's like it's good that depending on what your skill set is, you can find different ways to maximize it. Like if you're just the stone nuts at mono red, right? Like you understand mono red mirrors better than anyone. And by the way, this is a category that I fall so far outside of. Like every time I'm faced with the mono red mirror, my head just explodes. I have no idea what to do. And I feel dumbfounded that people consider like mono red not to be a skill intensive deck because every time I'm in this position, I'm just like, I have no clue what I should be doing on every single turn. Whereas playing something like Esper Control, I'm entirely comfortable and I feel in control all the time. So if that's where your skill set lies, you have something that you can really exploit. You can head to best of one and have an edge in those countless mirror matches you're going to be playing. And, and that's good. You need to be able to recognize that and lean into it a little bit when it's available. Or if you realize that, you know, you could be a more well-rounded magic player if you learned how to play mono red and, you know, mono red mirrors certainly matter and it is a different type of magic that you might not be used to playing, then maybe you should just be practicing in, in the best of one cues if you want to play magic, but aren't testing for any specific tournament, you know? And I I think people can really be utilizing stuff like that in their downtime in between tournaments just to get better at magic, period. Not necessarily to, you know, practice Is It Phoenix or, you know, try out a new sideboard plan or whatever. I think a lot of people will spend that time like drafting or cubing or, you know, maybe even playing other games or just jamming their favorite deck or whatever when I think that they should be kind of branching out and trying to teach themselves something new. No, that's a great point. There, there's two sides of the coin, right? You can lean into what you're good at, or you could find what you're bad at and work on it. Both are useful things to do for your development as a Magic player. And I know, I think actually playing best of one limited was really interesting for me. And I, I feel like I opened up a lot of potential, I guess I would say more in the deck building side. I, I think I found a lot of deck building quirks over the course of my experience with Rivals of Ixalan best of one, which is like this super dead format that shouldn't matter at all. But I felt like my time was well worth it and I took away a bunch from it. So you're spot on. There's always opportunities for learning, even in the oddest of formats. Right. And I mean, you can you can learn like card interactions in Popper that you can then port over to Modern or whatever, you know, like... Right. Being familiar with all of Magic's formats will definitely help you. It might not be helpful in a way that you necessarily need right now, but if you're here for the long term, if you're playing competitive Magic and you plan on doing it for a while, it would be beneficial to like brush up on Magic's history and even just like the current stuff that's going on, even if that format doesn't necessarily appeal to you. I think that's a great point. So, so to this effect, I really want to take this episode to hear a little bit from you. I, I've, I want to lean into your expertise here because you are so far deeper in this modern one format than I am. And I do have some opinions, but really what I want to know is now you've spent all this time preparing for this mythic invitational, what are your takeaways? And specifically, what do you see as the top of the best of one meta? Like, I want your best five best of one decks and you know how they kind of fit into the puzzle that is the best of one format. So I think the most important deck, not necessarily the best deck, is Mono Red because it does kind of warp everything around it. 
Right now, there are some cards that are specifically designed with best of one in mind. And going forward, I imagine that a larger percentage portion of the format will likely be those cards. But right now, it seems like just like every color combination has like one of them, right? Where it's like, you know, Thought Erasure kind of clears up some holes. Mortify clears up some holes. Uh, Carnival Mm. Carnage is a good early removal spell that is serviceable against most things and also not completely dead against control like a shock would be or whatever. So Mono Red has an insane amount of lightning bolts, a good curve of creatures, and they even have things like Experimental Frenzy at the top of their curve. That if you don't have an answer to an enchantment, it doesn't matter really like how much life gain you have or how much creature removal you have. Like you're you're just going to get buried by them. And no other deck in best of one is as strong or as well-rounded as mono red. And yes, you can build decks that beat it like BBD in January built like this green, white angel mid range deck, you know, that a lot of people are still playing to this day, right? Because it's very good against mono red. It's like a fine mid range deck. It's very bad against like hard control and uh, the wilderness reclamation decks and stuff like that. But like you can build effectively a hate deck and be successful on the ladder, but you really need to respect mono red in order to be successful because it is a significant portion of the people that you're going to play against. Talk to me a little bit about how mono red has evolved into its best of one role like how how has it taken on this dominant stance what has changed from you know your typical 75 card build of mono red at least as far as main decks go or or has it not changed at all is it just exactly what we were looking at in the early stages of standard no it's changed a ton but oddly enough it's just come full circle uh where where i think 18 to 20 mountains however much you want to actually try and abuse the the hand fixing algorithm or whatever Frenzy at the top ends, you have Chain Whirler, all the burn spells light up the stage. And I mean, that's about it. That's that's kind of like the deck that I played at PTGRN, I guess. And when uh, RNA came out, there was like uh, Skewer the Critics, Light Up the Stage, Spear Spewer, like all these different cards that people were trying. And then it was like, oh, Electrostatic Field is bust in the mirror, so I guess we have to play that. The Spear Spewers aren't good in the mirror, so... We have to cut those. And then decks like Mono Blue and Mono White started popping up and getting more and more popular. And then it was like, okay, I guess we have to go back to Chain Whirler now and, and stuff like that. And now it's just like, well, this is this is the most well-rounded and the, the format has figured out ways to play a bunch of different archetypes. So yeah, you, you need the Chain Whirlers, you need the Frenzies and, and stuff like that. Like you need to actually be able to deal with a bunch of different stuff now. If you wanted to hard target stuff like the mono red mirror match or whatever, you might build your deck a little bit differently. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I think that the way that the deck is built uh, basically three, four months ago is where you should be right now. You said something really interesting at the beginning of your explanation in terms of the hand fixing algorithm. And I wonder if we want to talk a little bit more about that right now, now that we're early in our discussion of the best decks. I mean, how much of a factor is the hand-fixing algorithm? And first, I guess, why don't I describe the hand-fixing algorithm? Basically, the way Magic Online Best of One works is that the program draws you two hands, and whichever one of those hands has closer to the average amount of lands you should draw in a seven-card hand with your deck that's the hand it gives you. 
Did I describe that effectively as, as you understand it? I think it's three hands now. Oh, is it three hands now? Yeah. And then when you mold a six, all bets are off. Okay. Okay. And so, it, so that and, does a few things, right? Like that has a, a staunch impact on your deck construction. So it leans towards the hand that has the better distribution of lands to spells, but it doesn't necessarily always select that one. Like there, it's not, it's not a hundred percent foolproof or whatever. What does that mean? It leans towards it. It's like 75% it'll take that hand. Who knows? No one knows, but it's like, obviously if you, you, you have drawn a zero land opening hand on arena before, right? Very rarely in best of one. Very rarely. Yes, very rarely. But that's because it's like if you play 20 lands and you have three three opening hands and it's like 80% or whatever it is to lean towards the one that's that's like a two land hand, like you're right. you're a, you're a favorite to get that, right? But it's not going to happen every single time. It's also possible that you could just draw three opening hands with zero land, right? That, that's what I was assuming had to happen for me to get zero lands. I didn't know it wasn't like a hard target of the hand that was closest to the average number. No, there's there's still some variance involved. Okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> so you're still learning about th- this particular algorithm, and I think that's why it's so interesting to discuss. Talk about how that's affected your deck building personally. I, I've seen people t- with dramatic takes on it, right? Like very early on in the format, we saw the 18 land decks. I've seen 14 land mono red decks from people. Yeah. Like there's crazy takes out there. Yep. Oh, I agree. And I I don't even know what's correct. I'm sure that there are better ways that we could actually abuse this. And for for the most part, I think that I'm I'm probably playing like a land too many in a lot of my decks. Like I'll still start with like, 20 land in mono red, even though that's probably not correct. And my mid range and control decks will have like 25 land or whatever. And I, I do feel like I feel it starting on like turn five or turn six, where like I start getting flooded and my opponent is not flooded, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's also weird because it's like these, these two land openers with control or mid range are, are kind of dicey. Whereas the aggro decks are a pretty big favorite to get like a two land opener, you know? And that's, that's just kind of their bread and butter. So I'm sure that there is a lot more that that could go into this. And I've kind of been slacking on actually just trying to like abuse the system. But the the biggest change is that your deck is basically functional a lot of games. And you don't necessarily have to aggressively mulligan a lot of the time. So, you know, like with, with aggressive decks, when, when I played Mono Red at PTGRN, I probably mulled like, you know... A, a third of my hands or something because it was like, all right, this is like a land too heavy or I'm missing a spot on my curve or whatever. And it's like, I wouldn't necessarily mulligan for the perfect hand, but when I look at my opener, it's like, is this hand capable of winning the game? Right. And a lot of the times it's just like, oh, this is just like too bad. Like maybe it has like three fanatical firebrands or whatever, which, you know, are are not going to like put on a reasonable clock with arena. Both players have seven cards and they have a reasonable draw a lot of the time, which I think makes it even more advantageous for the person on the play and Mm. more advantageous for the aggro deck a lot of the time, because normally with like control and mid range, you just you just like keep any seven that's lands or spells, right? Because like you have removal spells and you're trying to buy time and like all your cards are kind of the same. You're not really your game plan is not predicated on you curving out or whatever, right? Whereas the aggro decks might have this hole in their curve that, uh, you know, maybe they don't play anything on turn two. And that gives you like this nice window 
And now it's just like, or maybe they mulligan, right? And then you cast Cry of the Carnarium on turn three and they're just completely out of gas. But like those situations don't come up as, as often. So yeah, people are really concerned that it really favors aggressive decks just in general. And we also live in a format where mono white, mono blue, and mono red are all very, very good aggressive decks already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect storm. So I want to flirt with some ideas while we go through this discussion. It's a little bit of a derailment, but bear with me. One of the things I've heard talked about a lot is I think your position is shared by a lot of people. They feel in general, aggro is very favored. The play is very favored. And I've heard some people say that if best of one is really going to stick and like find a home and be accepted as a competitive format, something has to be done to mitigate being on the draw to some extent, because it's it's so damning for like these, these decks that are trying to answer mono red to be on the back foot from the beginning. Hearthstone answered this with the coin, of course, famously. Do you think there has to be some kind of additional measure? Like a treasure feels dramatic in magic. Like it's not quite the same as, as Hearthstone. And I think having a treasure in play might really unbalance a lot of stuff, but it's also hard because you see the problem if they start designing just in the cards ways for these decks to recoup the advantage, because then you get to best two out of three and it becomes really hard for aggro to find its footing when it's faced with the same old problems again. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are a lot of knobs to turn, so it's really difficult to just say that like, Oh, you know, if there are, more like Knight of Autumn type cards or even just like four toughness creatures when red only has three damage burn spells, like whatever metric you want to use uh, for, for a card that like, you know, kind of gets you back into the game or whatever. I don't know. Like I, I feel like play design and, and everyone else at wizards will do a better job of it than, you know, just the, the very obvious things that we're thinking of. Right. Yeah, like treasure feels a little stupid and like a little inelegant and very much outside the realm of magic, basically. You're starting yeah. to feel like a sort of a different game at that point. So I have a feeling it will be addressed. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. And I, I know they're open to feedback on this. Like I saw Aaron Forsyth, uh, Forsyth on Twitter today just taking a bunch of responses from people who are talking about best of one. And it's very clear that they know it. it's like somewhat imperfect as it stands right now. Yeah. But a worthwhile thing to explore for sure. Yep. And the, the treasure thing I want to address specifically because I want best of one to be very similar to a, a normal magic experience, right? Like you can be playing right. best of one and then being like, Oh, I want to go to FNM or this local magic fest or SCG tour right. stop or whatever. And then you have to like relearn this new rule set. And, you know, granted starting with a treasure, if you're on the draw is not, that different or whatever, but it will certainly change the way that you build decks and approach the game and everything. And you could argue that the hand smoothing algorithm already does that. But realistically, I think what it does is just remove a bunch of non games. Right. I would agree with that as well. And I also think that's a great thing for magic. Like if magic's going to be this exciting esport, uh, it's hard to have your biggest tournament decided by a mulligan to four, right? That's not a great look. And it's really anticlimactic and more games are better. That's for sure. Yeah. You could say that the silver pro level was created because of Josh Cho. And you could say that the hand smoothing algorithm was created because of Luis. I I think those are both probably pretty fair statements. Yep. So I, I think it's fine that it exists. It It is kind of weird 
for that to exist for ladder, because even if you get mana screwed or mold to oblivion or whatever, you can just queue up again. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there are games in Hearthstone where you, you like mull your entire opener and you just get all six drops. You lose. Right. And obviously some of that has to do with like deck building and stuff. But like, even if you're playing like an aggressive paladin deck, you're still playing like Tyrion, Tarum and stuff like that. And it's like, you could just draw all your legendaries and lose, but no, for sure. Yeah. And then for for real life tournaments, there there is no hand smoothing algorithm unless you're talking about like the duo standard arena tournaments or whatever. And, you know, there there are non games there. And that is the stuff generally that is going to be covered. Right. So it's it's just weird. Like, I, I get that actually improving people's play experience does matter. But as far as like coverage is concerned or whatever, the, the algorithm doesn't really help with it. So. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, for this tournament, it will, right? Like, yes, this is it is in effect. This is the big debut, and you understand why it's in effect here. And I think having a bunch of interesting games will be uh, a boon at this like big debut tournament. But you're, you're still a little concerned about aggro stomps, right? It doesn't necessarily solve that problem. And those will still feel like non-games where they just end on turn four. You know, 30-second games are not going to be particularly interesting either. So we'll see where it falls. But that's enough about the side stuff. Let's get back to the actual meat of best in one and get back in our deck discussion. Anything else you want to say about Mono Red? Or do you want to tell me what your your kind of contender for the crown is in the number two slot? So Mono Red, I think that basically anyone could probably play this deck at any given time and have like a 55% win rate and still be able to climb with it because it is really strong. And occasionally you're going to run into a lot of stuff that has like four revitalizes and cry of the Mm -hmm. carnariums and whatever. And like, you're just going to get stomped, but the games are over so quickly that just by sheer volume, you, you might rank up faster than uh, playing like an Esper control deck that has a 70% win rate. So I think Mono Red is basically always going to be present. It also doesn't take uh, any Mythic Rares unless you're playing Rekindling Phoenix. And there's only Steamkin, Chain Whirler, and Experimental Frenzy for Rares. So it's it's relatively cheap to build, too. So it's just going to be prevalent on the ladder, no matter what. So then you're looking at decks that just incidentally have a good matchup against Mono Red. Mm Mm-hmm. And where do we start that kind of list of contenders? Uh, the Esper control decks. I think Esper is a, a pretty solid number two because of the prevalence of Mono Red. But like as Esper gets bigger and Mono Red shrinks a little bit, then people can start bullying the Esper decks because the Esper decks have to move to like Cry of the Carnarium and Moment of Craving and all of these things that are very good at killing small creatures and gaining incidental am- am- amounts of life, right? So then it's like, mm-hmm. oh, X3 creatures are where you want to be. So then you start looking at Gruul or Mono Green or stuff like that. Yeah, so my experience, and it's it's limited, it's not as in-depth as yours. My experience with Esper on the best of one ladder also leads me to believe that's very squarely in the top tier of decks. You're right that as the format has evolved, people have started to target it specifically. And a lot of it is sizing, like you mentioned, but you still have a lot of outs to all of that in Esper. You always have just like fine curve outs of removal spell, removal spell, Kaya's Wrath, you know, Teferi, execute my game plan from that point. Right. And that's been where I have been happiest playing Mono 1, or excuse me, best of one. I don't know if that means it's the best 
arena deck, but I do know that it feels like I have the most agency and it feels closest to the actual magic experience. But you're giving up a lot by choosing to play Esper because like you mentioned, you're just not exploiting this hand smoothing algorithm to the extent you really want to be to be maximizing your arena experience, I think. Yeah, plus I, I think it is very easy for people to just queue up decks that are very good against Esper. Like Esper is probably more exploitable than mono red is because you can play stuff that's good against Esper that isn't hyper-focused and hyper-targeted, right? Where it's like, you just play like Zyrtog Goblin and Gruul Spellbreaker. And Mm. unless they have exactly Kaya's Wrath, which they probably have like two copies in their deck, they're probably just going to lose. And whereas mono red is like, you need to play Revitalize and Fountain of Renewal and just like all of this nonsense while also having answers to Experimental Frenzy. So I think... Esper will have moments where it is the best by a lot, but then it will very quickly change. Interesting. Very interesting. I have to say I'm a little surprised. Uh, and I granted, this isn't like your hard rankings of these decks. You're just kind of talking through this format as you see it. It's weird to not hear about mono white in kind of the second slot to mono red, because that's where I start my exploration of this format, where I think of it as as being focused. Just those two aggro decks really feel like the core of best of one. Do you just see them as somewhat interchangeable, at least as far as strategies that are looking to target them? Or is it, am I missing something about mono white's place in the metagame? Mono white's just kind of worse than mono red. Like mono Mm. white is winning primarily with creatures, which is a thing that, most people who are playing on the ladder are prepared to deal with. Mono Red is interacting like on the stack, and if you don't have any life gain, they're just going to burn you out. Whereas creature removal is just like this normal thing that people play, right? So a lot of people will also pair that creature removal with like big creatures or wild growth walkers, stuff like that. And then Mono White just has a harder time. And then for the cards that are good against Mono Red, they're usually good against Mono White also. It's interesting to hear you say that. Do you do you think people share this take? Because to me, and it's hard, right? Because we don't have like arena tournaments to look at and we don't even have deck list dumps like we do on Magic Online. We have arena deck lists. And to me, it just seems like people are super, super high on mono white and best of one. I see a lot of you know very good players talking about their climbs with it. I see a lot of people who occasionally grab rank one talking about, oh, I did it with just mono white, nothing else, or people doing very, very fast level ups by relying solely on mono white. So is this a commonly shared belief that mono red is better than mono white? Or is this just like your take, something you've taken away from all this time with the format? Well, the, th- the thing with mono white, again, being similar to mono red is that even at a 55% win rate, like you're still going to rank up relatively quickly. Sure. So I, I don't really know of many people who are tweeting at arena decklist and saying like, here's my mono white deck. I'm, you know, top whatever mythic and my win rate was like 70% like that just doesn't happen so you feel it's another quantity deck basically you get a lot of games done very quickly you're generally favored in a bunch of them you have explosive draws but it's not putting up preposterous win win rates in best of one right and I, I think it it's just way more vulnerable to a, a lot of mid-range decks or even like a lot of control decks that would struggle against mono red because they're still going to have things like Kaya's Wrath or Deafening Clarion, depending on what actual control deck they're playing or whatever. And like basically everyone is is automatically set up to be pretty good against mono white. And there are 
certainly uh, exceptions to that. Where like if you're trying to build like this green creature deck to beat up on mono red, well, mono white is going to go like wider than you, Wide. possibly yeah. taller than you, and you don't have enough removal to keep up with them. And like the the games are close. But I would say that Mono White is a slight favorite against them, whereas like those green decks are normally a little bit of a favorite against Mono Red. Okay, that's an interesting wrinkle in the positioning. So if people aren't tweeting about 70% win rates uh, with these two decks, what are you seeing people talking absurd win rates with? Like you are the master behind Arena Decklist. You get to see all of this stuff first before anyone else does. What has been the shining star of people's arena climbs who's impressing you the most with their win rates uh it's generally stuff like control or weird weird things like team or reclamation where if there is a lull point for aggro on the ladder and you're just playing against like mid-range and control decks you're just gonna smash them team or reclamation has some of the most polarizing matchups so if you're if you're playing it at a time when the metagame is favorable that's when you're going to be posting a 70% win rate. But there are also going to be days where you win maybe 20% of your games and you're just getting smashed by like mono red, mono white over and over and over again. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And I I love that you finally brought up polarized matchups because that's one of the big effects of best of one is that in best of three, you can mitigate those awful matchups. You find ways, you find sideboard plans. Sometimes you transform. You do things like biogenic ooze out of the team of reclamation deck, or you're bringing in a bunch of mana creatures. You can just totally refine how you're approaching a matchup. Obviously, you cannot do that in best of one. And there are more polarized matchups than what we're typically used to in Magic. It, it feels strange. It feels like a different game sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the the polarizing nature of it just means that you know, at, at times you are going to have like these really sick runs where, especially in best of one, if you fought, if mono red is all over the place, right? And you just build like this life gain blue white control deck, like, you're just going to slice through them all. And mm-hmm. you're, you're just, you're not going to lose very many games at all. And you're, you're just going to climb very quickly. But for the most part, for best of one, I think people are just like, well, I want a deck that's like good against everything. And then they're, they're playing like these mid-range decks or like a Jeskai control deck or Saltai or whatever. And it's just like these these decks are not very good in best of one because you're you're gonna be like 60% in some matchups, 40% in others, and your win rate is gonna be very close to 50-50, and the the climb is going to just be like abysmally slow, plus your games mm-hmm. are gonna take long. So you can't even do like the volume-based thing. So your stance on climbing the ladder is basically Take your beats when you're getting the bad matchups. Understand that's what you signed up for. And then when you hit that wave, ride it as hard as you can. Find that stretch of 75% win rate and use that to do your rapid climbing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if so if I if I thought Esper was big and I play Team Reclamation and I just run into a bunch of aggro decks, like, okay, then I'm, I'm switching to Esper, right? And then I'm just going to bully those people. And it it might change, like, if you go from, like, Platinum to Diamond and then, like, Diamond to Mythic, that the metagames at each level are likely going to be different from each other. Because Mm. otherwise, like, if there's a bunch of aggro in Platinum, right, and the Esper people are just climbing a bunch, all the Esper people are going to end up in Diamond, right? And then all the Team of Reclamation people in Diamond are just going to beat all the Esper people and go to Mythic. So... right. 
the the levels end up having like their own they should be stratified basically yeah they they end up with their own like polarized metagames which is kind of weird yeah it's interesting all this stuff is interesting it's been fascinating to see a new like system arise around the game i love um and to consider all this stuff that basically like hearthstone players have been considering forever right it's not something i really had to explore in depth previously so i'm enjoying learning all this stuff thinking about it it's it's been an interesting ride for sure yeah, I mean, it, it is very much about figuring out what the flavor of the week is and just trying to beat up on those people. And I I would say that you need to walk a fine line between not wanting to switch decks and wanting to switch decks, where if you queue up against two mono red decks in a row, well, okay, that's just a small sample size. You should probably keep going. But the other day I played against literally seven mono red decks in a row. And mm. it's just like, okay, I think it's safe to say that there is a lot of mono red at, at this point in the ladder, you know, and maybe if I want to continue climbing, I should switch decks. But it was actually really good testing because I wanted to, I was testing a deck against, and I wanted to play against Mono Red, you know, so. Nice, good timing. Yeah, the ladder provided, which was nice. If I was giving advice to someone basically wondering how to mitigate, you know, not over switching, I would say give yourself time limits. Like, be like every hour, do a check-in and see if it's time to switch decks. Don't just do it after an arbitrary number of games. Have a have a set point where you're like, okay, time for me to reevaluate my deck choice at this juncture. Hour is probably a little bit of a small time frame, maybe every hour and a half. If you're planning on doing a day of grinding, you can use that to assess your deck choice and maybe make a switch. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. All right. So we talked mono white. We talked mono red. We talked Esper. What else is out there at the top of this best of one metagame? Team Reclamation you mentioned as well. Yeah, Team of Reclamation, I think, will not be top five. I think that it's okay. very very good against uh, a small subsection of the metagame. And because of that, maybe it's a good choice for a duo standard in some lineups, right? Like if you have a deck that just like preys on all of the aggressive decks and then you are pretty weak to control decks or, you know, maybe you are a control deck, so you're weak to you know, whatever decks are beating up on control decks, then maybe team or reclamation is a thing that you can have to kind of round out your lineup, I suppose. But then it's really weird when you get to game three and you have to Mm -hmm. pick which deck to play. You're basically just flipping coins, which I don't really like. Right. But yeah, mono blue was very good in best of three. And I I think that mono blue, it's weird because it doesn't, seem like it gains a lot from its sideboard no it doesn't and this is this is interesting to me because that you, what you're about to say i've heard from other people as well please go ahead but i do think it's so much better in best of three than it is best of one because yeah the the, the stuff that you gain out of the sideboard just it gives you game against your worst matchups so like if you play mono blue against mono red i think with no sideboards then mono blue is still fine in that matchup right and if you play mono blue against mono white, well, mono blue always got a lot more from its sideboard than mono white did because mono white had a bunch of stuff in its sideboard to deal with like Golgari or Sultai. And you would pick mm-hmm. up a bunch of like entrancing melodies and like surge mares to block and stuff like that. And I, I think the same is kind of true for mono blue against Esper, especially now where Esper is just like mono creature removal. Like I, I must beat up the red decks on the ladder. And then the blue deck would side in like, more relevant counter spells and maybe things like search for his cancer, Jace cunning castaway, like more of these engine type cards to actually keep up. But mono blue right now is bad against mono white. It's pretty bad against Esper. I think 
having sideboard negates really helped it against things like team reclamation. And if you don't have access to a lot of the, the stuff that you need in game one, you're, you're just banking on drawing like the right part of your deck basically. So if, if I were to play mono blue on ladder, I would decide what it was that I wanted to beat up on. And if it's like, well, I need to be able to fight the like mono red Esper and team of reclamation. And then I'll just take my lumps to white weenie as it comes. Then I would just play like a bunch of negates and uh, maybe extra charter courses to keep up with Esper and stuff like that. Like best of one is very different than just copying a deck list from a best of three tournament and then not playing a sideboard. One thing I was going to ask, what about like finding the middle ground? So as opposed to saying, okay, I'm targeting this, you instead say, okay, this card is like a little bit better here, a little worse here, but it kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Like I'm thinking of a card like Surge Mare, which was a card I was playing main deck. Ultimately, I I think it proved not to be correct to play it main deck. I think Autumn certainly cracked the code at the Pro Tour, but still I was satisfied with Surge Mare in the matchups that I wasn't necessarily playing it, it for moving it back to the main deck in something like best of one is interesting to me, but it doesn't really seem like what you're trying to do. You're you'd, you'd rather just figure out where you're strong, lean into that point and not just kind of drag yourself to the middle. Is that correct? So one of the decks I like a lot is like the, the kind of bigger red decks. I, I played a thing like that in Twitch rivals. I almost played Rakdos at, at the last MC stuff like that. And part of the problem with it is that you have all these like lava coils and shocks that aren't good against Esper but I do think that there's a way to build that deck where you have Carnival Carnage instead of the majority of your shocks and you play Lightning Strike instead of Lava Coil and then you play Angrath as your five drop and then you just right. end, end up with like a bunch of ways to like burn out their Planeswalkers or burn out them and in combination with like Rick's Mighty Reveler and Treasure Map to do your card drawing and stuff. And I think that there is a way to make Mono Blue a little bit more like that where, you know, instead of playing Essence Capture, you have Surge Mare. Right where it's like this. This is at least a threat against Esper. It doesn't die to cry a Carnarium, but Essence Capture is actually truly dead against them. Right. So right. I I think there is merit to doing that, but it's it's just so tough because like it is hard. Realistically, in order to beat Esper, you need all of your cards to actually do something, and Surge Mare does something. But instead kind of, of. In, instead of hedging with like medium cards in every matchup you should just be playing the cards that are actually good against 60% of the field, which is why I recommended stuff like a bunch of main deck negates, right? Yeah, it's interesting. And this is a hard puzzle to solve, right? Because I don't think anyone knows with any kind of certainty what the field is going to look like for this tournament. And I, I think if they profess to, they're kind of lying. And that's been one of the struggles in preparation that I've seen people having is that there's just really no clear metagame for a tournament format that has never existed before. Have you felt the pinch of that as you've been doing your preparation? Like, just like, man, I wish I knew what my opponents were thinking right now. Yeah, of course, because people, everyone is going to come to like different conclusions, right? And Mm -hmm. they, they're going to be like well rationalized and they're going to have their reasons and everything. And it's like, this person could stop on, on level one, this person could stop on level two, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not just like, a metagame thing where it's like, Oh, how many people are going to have Esper in their lineup? It's like, it it is literally like what type of lineups are people actually going to play? Like there are enough people streaming their prep for this event that you can have 
a reasonable enough guess as to what the field is going to look like. It's like, okay, you know, these 30 people really like Esper. They're probably going to have Esper in their lineup, but what's their other deck? And what is the best way to set my lineup up against their lineup? And that has been the most difficult part for me where I think right now I have a deck that is pretty good against most things. And the good part about that is that I'm not 80, 20 in any matchup, but I'm like, you know, 60, 40 in a lot of places. And then for game three, I just get to click submit for that deck. And I just, I don't have to really make a decision. I don't have to think about it. I'm not necessarily running into a situation where, I have two decks that are bad against one of their decks, you know, and then I just like lose Mm -hmm. if we go to game three, whatever. And I think that is honestly the best way to approach it. What is where I just have a deck that is reasonable against everything. And I just submit that for game three every time, because otherwise we're talking about the, the lineups where they have like a hard control deck and a hard beatdown deck. And I have a deck that answers one and a deck that answers the other. And then we're just flipping coins, trying to like level each other for game three. And I I don't think that that's a good situation to be in, which makes me kind of question the validity of the format as a whole and whether or not that this thing is going to be viable long term and actually has legs. Because if you have decks that are just like 80, 20 against each other and you just hope you pick the right ones or you get met, like what if you just get matched up correctly in the first two games, right? And you two owe the person like it could also just go the other way and you get O2'd. Right. But everyone could go to your strategy too. I mean, like if this is the correct thing to do, it could be the default mode of operation going forward. And then everyone has this 50% deck sitting in their second slot. Well, yeah. I mean, I, ideally I don't want a 50% deck. I, I have a, right. six, I have a 60% deck. Yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to sell you short there. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate that. So yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Like games like Hearthstone have kind of solved this by, having wider lineups and being able to ban things so that, you know, what if, what if I built like two decks that were good against things that were not mono red and then I just banned mono red or like we had three decks and I just banned one of their decks. Right. And I, I think that that makes the format a little bit more palatable and gives you more agency. Like your decisions actually matter versus like what two matchups do I get? And then like, we just flip a coin for game three. It's, it's just so weird to me, you know, it, it does not, feel like you have as much agency as a normal match of magic. Yeah. We'll have to see how it evolves over time. I, like we said, this is a first pass at it and there's no reason this has to be the final form of best of one, uh, as it relates to competitive magic. So we'll see where it ultimately settles. Anything else you want to talk about in terms of just your prep or are there other decks you want to mention that you think are going to be an important part of this mythic invitational? I think the green aggro decks are going to be very strong, but I don't know how popular they're going to be just because of like Esper's configuration, right? If people are playing Esper because they value moment of craving and cry of the carnarium against red, white, and blue, and you just show up with like thrashing Brontodon and, and like Thorn Lieutenant or whatever, like Mm. I I think that is a good choice and is likely going to be in my lineup. What are the odds that someone comes out of left field with something that nobody's expecting and just like crushes this tournament? Like they register it twice and they're like, yep, figured out best of one. Is there any chance we're going to see something like that at this Mythic Invitational? I don't think that there's like, I, I already know of someone who has submitted effectively the same deck. 
in both slots, which I think is dumb. Effectively uh, or actually? Uh, I don't know the details. Okay. Interesting. I know that at least one person has uh, the same deck submitted, right? But I don't know if like the the versions differ all that much. Given the deck, I'm guessing that they don't. But as far as like someone breaking the format and submitting it twice, I think the chance for that is zero. As far as someone submitting a deck that you probably haven't seen before, I think the chances of that are very high. And there, there are just like a lot of things that I've been experimenting with in best of one that I do think have legs for trying to climb the ladder and potentially having a spot in a lineup because I don't know, or I can't even really guess like what other people's lineups are going to look like. It's really hard for me to actually, you know, register white, black mid range, or there's, there's like mono red. That's double splashing hydroid crasses that uh, Greg Kowalski was streaming there's like the the Esper Acuity deck that is effectively only good in best of one because it has 15 one-ofs in its sideboard for Mastermind's acquisition, you know? Mm. Like th- there are going to be a lot of cool decks in this tournament, and I think that best of one for ladder play has not been fully explored. I think the format has shifted a ton in the last month when people started streaming their preparation. Right. Yeah, I, I've certainly seen that just in what I've been watching. Do you have sideboards for both of your decks? In case of the, oh, maybe that gives too much away. Maybe I won't hold you down. Next, that, that shows you have daredevils or something to that effect. Yeah. So the the decks the decks that I've been playing with that have daredevil or expansion explosion have had sideboards. Okay. Uh, and it's, I think it's, you have to, right? Yeah, you just, do. You just be spearing if you didn't, right? It, and it comes up, and it's like you know you're probably fine like tutoring for a card in your deck or whatever. But it's like, what if instead of tutoring for this Andograth you have in your deck, you tutor for like a captive audience in your sideboard or something, right? Like, right. <laughs> that's so crazy. I hope we see a cool play like that. That'll be awesome. Yeah, I I mean I went back and forth between like actually wanting a deck that had uh, the ability to like backdoor their acquisitions. Because I, I kind of like the idea of like going through and like figuring out a sideboard, but I also just hate the idea. It's like, yeah, it would be cool if I like broke it and figured out the perfect card to tutor for against like Dovin's Acuity or whatever. But then I'm just like, why am I even messing with this nonsense? Like, I just don't even want to bother. It's, it's a lot of like thought time invested for very little potential return. That's the problem with it is you could go real deep and you could probably figure out some real impressive stuff. It's just like, what are the odds of this actually being relevant? It's so hard to say. So I was, I was playing with red uh, splashing green, like the warrior stack. And that deck has mm. three, three daredevils. And I played against acuity enough. I was like, okay, fine. I'm just, I'm finally going to build a sideboard and, already had one frenzy main deck and uh, I put another one in the sideboard because if you're daredeviling their acquisition, you would rather just have the the frenzy still be in your deck, right? Because you could tutor for it and it gets destroyed and then you just can't draw it anymore when it's like your best card. And then it was like, okay, well now I have like, you know, four virtual copies of frenzy. It's possible that I'm going off with frenzy and I get to, daredevil their acquisition what's the best card to get then and then it's like mm-hmm. coming up with all of these weird like sub scenarios and it's like okay i guess i have a wayward sword tooth in my sideboard now because like that actually matters that's wild yeah it goes deep it goes really deep even if we don't get to see the play we'll get to see people's submissions and i'm curious if people will go ultra deep oh there are going to be people submitting sideboards even though they have no way to do it it's it's mm-hmm. it's just kind of silly yeah it's it's odd but it could make for a great story. 
And uh, I think that's a lot of what this tournament is going to be about. So, uh, Did you watch uh, Hearthstone Worlds when Pavel won? No, I did not. Okay, so you know the card Babbling Book? No, that was during a period I wasn't playing. Give me, give me like the quick version of what, okay, so what it does. Okay, it's, so it's a one mana one one mage card. Uh, Battle Cry, put a random mage spell into your hand. Okay. He effectively like zero outered two people. <laughs> That's pretty sick. I, yeah. and I, I think I think Amnesiac against him in, in top eight, he like runner runner zero outered him, which is just insane, right? And I, I think this is stuff that like the acuity people have probably not played against. It's like, oh yeah, you're playing some stupid mid-range deck. Like I'll just go over the top of you. It doesn't really matter what you tutor for. And then you do get something like captive audience and they're just like, yeah, I lose. Right. Yeah. That's wild. And look, you're telling the story right now. You're telling me about this world's from, I, I don't know how long ago. This sounds like it was maybe like two or three years ago. Yeah. But it was like, like 2016. This is something, yeah. This is something that's stuck with the history of the game forever. And now in this major, major magic tournament, there's the possibility for something like that. I mean, I get what you're saying. It, it is somewhat silly, but ultimately it's going to be more like, we're not going to remember it as something silly. If we have one of those moments where something incredible like that happens. Right. I mean, especially if it's it, if it's in like the elimination rounds, right? Like, yeah. Or can you imagine just like ending up in some weirdo situation? And it's like, Oh, I didn't put the sanguine sacrament in my deck or whatever. It's like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and you regret it forever. Yeah. I, I don't know. It'll be wild to see. I'm, I'm loading up arena right now so I can read, read you uh, one of my sideboards. Okay. I would love to hear it. All right. So this is, this is uh red, black mid range. Mm-hmm. Four treasure maps, obviously, because we've established that I have a treasure map problem. Loves treasure map more than I, I was watching this guy play. It was just all treasure map all the time. This is the same thing where it's like I have a frenzy in my sideboard. I also have an unmoored eco in my red black deck because I can cast it off treasures. Okay, very cute. So that's kind of weird. I do think the ca- captive audience is legitimately good. I could buy that. This is like a uh, green red aggro with a uh, pill collector. And I have the the Frenzy Sword 2 thing that I was talking about. I was also thinking about like different card drawers that I would want in different situations. Because I think like tutoring for a card advantage thing is like probably the best thing that you can be doing. So -hmm. it's like if they're low on life, I want a risk factor. If they're not low on life and like the game is still relatively early, I think I want a Frenzy. And if the game is just like, oh, I just need like a little bit of a push, I think I want uh, a Jaya Ballard where it's like, oh, I need like this quick burst of cards. Wow, that's a cool one. Very nice. But if it's like super early and we both have seven cards in hand, I have a, I have a Shaper Sanctuary. Okay, so just blunt all their removal. I like it. Yeah, and then uh, I also have a Sentinel Totem in case they're at the point where you know, they're about to start like going off and like clear the mining their deck or whatever. Oh my God. We got to the sentinel totem point of (laughs) thinking about these sideboards. That's pretty far. I try and have an answer for everything, you know? Uh, No, you should. You're incentivized to, I I get it. I understand why. Yeah. And then it's just like a a rhythm of the wild in, in like the green based one. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have like a carnage tyrant, a ravager worm, bane fires obviously in there. See, you're calling this stupid, but I can tell as you talk about this, you enjoyed thinking about this and you enjoyed finding these cards. I, I just wish that I didn't have to do it, but it is it is kind of fun. I also wish that I just spent my time doing anything else. Doing something else. That's the issue is how much time should you invest? All right. Uh, question time. Yeah, let's do a question. 
So our question this week comes from Churro Master. I love churros. What a great name. <laughs> Churro Master wants to know if the appeal of best of one cues is that you can always just play another game after you lose. Should best of one tournaments incorporate a larger number of games per match to better utilize that appeal? I think that's a really interesting question. Is the fact that this tournament is ostensibly best two out of three, is that a flaw in the tournament structure? Should it be something like three out of five, maybe? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, time is a factor, and for this tournament specifically, it's it's a it's a spectacle, right? It is it is supposed to be mm-hmm. an exhibition event, either arena or the fact that they're trying to move heavily into esports or the big prize pool or the people in the playing playing in the tournament or like a new format. Like all of these things are meant to get eyeballs onto this event. Do people want to see like best three out of five, or would they? like lose interest. I don't know. I mean, I I think if it was like a Hearthstone lineup type of thing that you could keep it interesting, but how much longer would it take for the the tournament to run too? Cause like we have a pretty light schedule for the event every day, which I think is really cool be as, as a person playing in the event. uh, I just get to like show up for like a few hours each day and, and that's basically it. You could also make the argument for like, oh, they should want to be broadcasting this tournament for as long as possible, right? To like maximize on all this stuff. So uh, I do think that you can just play another game after you lose is important. It is something that we talked about and the games are relatively short just because there there are a lot of aggro decks and there's not a lot of time spent. Uh, in between games, whereas in normal tournaments, you'd be like sideboarding and that takes forever. And then you have to shuffle and blah, blah, blah. And arena is just like, all right, queue up your next deck. Like, let's go. I don't know. I, f- I feel like best three out of five wouldn't be that egregious. I don't know that you could do things like, you know, make six decks and then ban one or whatever. But who knows? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think a lot of my answer to this question will depend on how they ultimately cover the tournament because i i think that's so much more important than the player experience right now i'm sorry i'm being dismissive of what you get to do jerry but i i think this needs to come across really impressively uh as a a vehicle for magic arena and the most important part of that is going to be showing as much magic as possible now best two out of three works for that if they have the capability to hop around across a bunch of matches. That's cool. You get to show a lot of decks, a lot of people and nonstop action. That would be really good. If it's going to be more like a pro tour setup where they're like, okay, these are our feature matches. And when they end, that's it. And we're going to the news desk for a while. Then I think best three out of five would be better. But I would also point out like, as you add more potential matches to the round, then you have more separate outcomes and how long a round takes to complete. Like the person who 3-0s someone with all aggro decks could be, what, an hour and a half shorter than the match that goes to five games with two people who are playing control decks against each other, right? Yeah, so that's you true. you run into that problem if you get to big numbers. So I, I, I think this is all going to be trial and error. There's some point down the road where depending on how things are set up, maybe best three out of five is the way to go. But I think keeping things a little bit smaller, a little bit more compact is probably going to be best for the viewing experience. I just hope we're moving around and seeing a lot of magic. That's the key. So much of our screen time should just be heads buried in the battlefield, you know, two people shown on the sides with camera shots and 
constant, constant magic arena is what I want to see more than anything else. And whatever best achieves that goal, that's what I'm looking for at this tournament. Yeah, I'm down with that. You you also said something that's pretty interesting to me where I do think that they're going to have the capability to just bounce around to multiple matches and highlight a bunch of different decks and also a bunch of different players, which Mm -hmm. given the nature of the event, I think is probably pretty important and agreed makes me lean towards the the best two out of three thing a lot more than three out of five because it, it's 64 players. You want all of these people to get on, you know, in the spotlight to some degree. And I mm-hmm. think this is a good way to do it. No, that's a, a very good point. There's so many unknowns. If it, it feels so hard to answer these questions right now, but we will see when the mythic invitational rolls around. I cannot wait. I'm so excited for this tournament. I, I haven't been this excited for a magic tournament in a long time. I have very high expectations and I hope they are met. And plus I get to root for one of my best friends to make a quarter million dollars. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty big day for me, for me. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now that I'm probably going to let you down. Okay. I'm going to tell you at some point I'm leaving this podcast. Then I'm not telling you when, <laughs> but I'm definitely leaving. That's fine. I already have like five backups in mind. I'm sure you do. I've been, I've been planning for this day. Now I need to worry about getting poisoned. No, no, man. I'm not going to forcibly remove you from the podcast. I might, if we leave on bad terms or something, I mean, you know, then, then I might have to take action, but. But what if these backups find out that they're next in the line of succession? I, I'm mm. like a king on his throne waiting to just be poisoned by everyone in my court at any given moment. And I don't like referring to myself as a king. That sounds really weird. But still, you get my point. I am in constant fear of the people who are trying to usurp my position. Nah, man, I, I don't I don't let them know until it's time to call them up, you know? That's true. I, I was not uh, slated until Majors actually left, so I can confirm that. Yeah, and at that point, I had to think on it for a couple weeks and like make sure that I was uh, absolutely certain that you were the best person for the job. Fooled you. Okay, good. I nailed those few weeks. Oh, man, I wonder if I still have like my list of names somewhere. I probably do. Don't look at it. You'll you'll be full of regret at this point. No. Just 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 figure out things work this way. It's fine, and and don't look back in the past. No, nah, man. I I think I think we do a good job. I think that we work well together. I think that the fact that we get to do commentary together is also awesome because I think we're arguably even better as a commentary team than a podcast team. I had a great time doing commentary this weekend with the Hunter Burton Memorial Open. I am looking forward to heading back to Cincinnati doing some more commentary. It's something that. Uh, I have enjoyed and and I agree. I think we do a nice job of it. So I hope everyone will come and check us out this weekend. That's game. 